Hello, welcome along. It's the time of the week. Not sure about you. I'm getting a bit itchy feet. I'm getting a bit tired of life down here on planet Earth. So what do you say we take a quick spin around the solar system and we see what's out there? Let's get to it. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. This is the show where we explore the universe, learning all those science secrets lurking in places we've never discovered before. This week, we'll chat to a proper space expert. His name is Colin Stewart, all about his adventures around the world looking into the sky. We are planning the first missions to go to Mars. We're building the rockets now that can send people to Mars. We're planning for everything. And I reckon some people say sooner, but I reckon we can send the first people to Mars in about 30 years from now, which sounds a long time. But here's the really exciting thing. When Neil Armstrong walked on the moon for the first time, he was 38 years old. So if the first person to walk on Mars is also going to be about 38, but they're not going to do it for 30 years. How old are they now? They're around about eight years old. Somewhere between the ages of about five and 15, I would say. In other words, the first Martian is at school right now. Also, we'll head to Deep Space High, the smartest school in the solar system, to see about jobs you can get in space if you love science in school. Whatever your interest, there's a job for you in space. So, stats, let's hear from you. What's your favourite topic? If it's stats, it's bound to be science. Well, duh, of course. I'm not top of the class in chemistry, biology and physics for nothing. And I've got your questions to answer. This week they are on water, plants and grass. It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start this week with your science in the news. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, we love it so much. It's back with more brilliance. It might have discovered tentative, cautious evidence of a sign of life on a faraway planet. It thinks it's detected a molecule uh, called dimethyl sulfide. Now, this is very important because here on Earth, the only way you get that molecule is when life makes it. Now, scientists have stressed very much so that uh, they think it might be there. They need to do a bit more research about it, but it could be on a planet 120 light years away. They've also found methane and CO2, carbon dioxide, in the planet's atmosphere. Detection of those gases could mean that this planet, which is named K2-18b, has a water ocean So those signs are pointing in one direction. If I was a detective, I might say, case closed, this planet has life on it. Also, a farm in East Yorkshire is using drones to do some work. It's thought to be the first in the UK to do this. The drone flies through the sky and then drops a type of seed called oilseed rape onto the ground uh, where it plants and it grows into a crop. And it's thought to be a much more efficient and greener way of planting seeds. What a great idea. Also, an eco-campaigner has completed a non-stop swim around a Greek island to raise money to support projects clearing up the seas. Ollie Rush finished his swim around an island called Ithaca in 19 hours, 41 minutes. Solid swimming, swimming 60 kilometres, that's 37 miles. He said he had sore, smelly armpits, was a bit seasick, but also was relieved and buzzing from his adventure. 
he did it to raise money uh, to fund the projects to clear up marine litter. What a brilliant way of doing that. Well done, Ollie. I love very incredible ways that people raise money for causes very close to their heart. We're focusing so much on like the big climate crisis at the moment, so maybe some of these smaller things like clearing up the oceans around a very specific part of the world, sometimes that can get overlooked. So more of this, the better. Brilliant work, Ollie. Let's check in with Techno Mum then. Another episode from our brilliant series. You see, Techno Mum is a genius. She knows all the answers to any tech question that you have and about gadgets, engineering, why things are the way they are. This week, we're with Techno Mum and her son, Tim, looking at mobile phones because they're an everyday part of life. Pretty much everyone has got one, but how do they work? Techno Mum with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing technology. Me and Mum were on a day trip to London to see the sights. We were meant to be meeting Dad outside the Tower of London, but there was no sign of him. I was beginning to think the beef eaters had marched him away. I'll try his mobile again. I'm sure I said two o'clock. That's frustrating. It says network busy. Is the phone broken? No, or at least I hope not. It just means a lot of people are using their phones at the moment. Mobile phones work by sending signals through the air using radio waves, you see. Mobile phone masts act like antennae and collect the signals. But if there's a lot of mobile phones around and lots of calls are being made, the antennae may not be able to take all the signals, that's all. We'll just wait a minute or two. Yeah, but assuming you do manage to get through, what happens when the antenna has picked up the radio waves? How does it know where Dad's phone is? He could be anywhere. Although I expect he's just stuck on the tube. He gets stuck on the tube a lot. Well, all mobile phones automatically connect to a network if they can. If they're switched on and in credit, any phone would, well, be sort of waving madly at the antenna. (laughs) You mean like, yoo-hoo, I'm over here. Okay, but what if there's no antenna nearby? Then you get a message saying no coverage. But yes, if they can, all phones, even when not making calls, will try to check in to the nearest antenna. It's like signing a register, and it really is a register. The log of what phones are connected to what antenna is called the Visitor Location Register, and the VLRs share the information around. We've got a register at school. I wonder if the radio waves have to put up their hand and say, Here, sir, like we do. Do they get into trouble if they're late? What if they have a dentist appointment? Do they have to bring in a note from Mum? When we make a call, the signals are passed to the antenna using radio waves, and the phone we are after is looked up on the registers. The signals will be passed around the country, or even overseas, through places called switching centres, until they get to the antenna that the person being called has checked into. And hey presto, the phone call is passed back to the phone over radio waves again, all in a flash. Why don't we try phoning again? Let me have a go. Network busy still. I suppose that means there's no way of calling him. We could be waiting forever. Easy, Tiger. There may be some old technology that can help us out here. Let's see. Yes, look, there's a payphone nearby. The red-coloured boxes on the street over there. What? You mean there's a phone in there? That's right. Before mobile phones, which was only about 20 years ago, this is how we had to make calls when we were out and about. There's a phone fixed in the box for anyone to use. It has a similar way of passing calls about, but they're sent over electrical signals in the cables and wires rather than radio waves. Okay, forget that. It's Dad. Phew, thank goodness for that. I didn't have any change for the phone anyway. 
I can see that the old red phone boxes and public pay phones are kind of useful, but mobile phones get my vote. You can't chuck a phone box in your pocket or take it on the bus. Right, he's on his way. Let's have a look for some souvenirs while we're waiting. Maybe you can find a little red phone box. There aren't many left these days. You're not looking very impressed. It just looks old-fashioned, like something in a museum. I'd rather have a smartphone any day. I prefer the design of the old red phone boxes, actually. It's a classic. Nah, my mate Dylan's phone is a classic. It has 70 ringtones. Sounds horrible. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Advancing and sharing technology. Let's get to some of your questions then. If you have any question that you want answered on the show, uh, best way is to leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app. You can record yourself there. Send it to funkidslive.com too. And I've been burning through the questions recently. So if you've got anything, make sure you send it over and we can squeeze it in. First one this week was left as a review on Apple Podcasts. It's from Amy who wants to know why is water see-through? Well, a beam of light has all the colours in it. Every colour that exists pretty much is in a beam of light. Now, when we see something that has a colour, like let's take a red wall, for instance, it's because the light hits the wall. The electrons in that wall absorb all the other colours in a beam of light, but the red reflects back. It bounces back towards us, which is why that wall looks red. Water is transparent because it's colourless. So all the colours in that beam of light can pass right through it and they all bounce back to us, which is why we can see it all the way through. That's why it's transparent, Amy. Thank you so much for the question. Here's one from Hannah who wants to know, how do scientists come up with names for plants and animals? They sometimes get really creative, don't they, Hannah? Well, scientists use a system called the International Code of Botanical Nomenclature. Oh, very fancy. It just means International Code of Plant Names, really. Uh, For animals, it's called the Binomial Naming System. Now, normally it's based uh, on Latin, which is an old language, so that everyone in the world can recognise it. Not everyone can speak English, but most people their language kind of descends from Latin, so they might have an idea of what it means, that kind of stuff. Uh, Plant names are made up of two parts. The first is what type of characteristics it has. Is it like a rose? Is it an apple? Is it a stone fruit? The second part of the name is the species, a bit more specific. To make it easier, sometimes experts will give animals more common names after famous people. Uh, Sir David Attenborough, He's presented all those wildlife programs, done so much to to, to try and save the world. He's got loads of creatures, even a dinosaur named after him. Uh, King Charles has a frog named after him. Even Beyonce. Beyonce has a horsefly named after her because it has thick gold hair like one of the world's greatest pop stars, Beyonce herself. So thank you, Hannah. That's how scientists come up with names. Uh, This one is from Frog Girl, who's left again a review on Apple Podcasts, who wants to know, what's the tallest blade of grass ever? Well, actually, we'll look at bamboo for this because bamboo is is a kind of type of grass. It's got grass all around it and it grows really, really high. The tallest bamboo grass height recorded so far uh, is a whopping 137 feet, which is just over 41 metres. This was grown in India. 
Very tough to grow bamboo grass because it needs fertile soil, rich in nutrients. It needs a lot of water all around it. But if it gets that, it gets very tall. Frog girl, like that bit of bamboo grass over in India. Thank you so much for the question. If you've got anything that you want to answer next week on the show, I really want to hear from you. I want to hear your voice. I want you to star in the show. So leave it as a voice note for me on the Free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Find the Science Weekly page there and click record and you'll star in the show next week. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly where we are talking astronomy today with expert, author, speaker, travelling all over the place, teaching about space. It's Colin Stewart. Thank you for being there, Colin. No problem. Hello. So uh, astronomy, looking up at the night sky, spotting stars. When did this love of discovering things that weren't in our world really start for you it's been so long i can't even remember so i don't kind of remember falling in love with space i've always been in love with it since i was incredibly small i think there's just something about you know seeing the moon in the night sky or looking up at the stars it's just it's always been magical to me i've been obsessed with it since i was very very small a, a detective in a story that we might read maybe they've got their magnifying glass they've got the the book of evidence they've got case clues what type of instruments do you and astronomers use uh, to uncover the mysteries of space then what do we need well so normally the only thing we have to go on for space is the light that comes from the thing to us so the most basic way of, of getting that light is a telescope Think of a telescope as a big bucket. It's collecting, it's not collecting rainwater, it's collecting light from space. And so by collecting more and more light, by building bigger and bigger telescopes, we can see further and further away. But we've also come up with really clever ways to do things to the light once we collect it. So there are some devices, for example, that will split up the light into what is basically a rainbow. And hidden in that rainbow are clues about how fast things in space are moving or, or what those things in space are made of. So we've come up with all these different techniques to kind of squeeze as much information out of the light uh, that we're getting from these things as possible. What always amazes me, as you've said, because so much of what is out there is a mystery and we are exploring uh, you know, billions of light years from just this tiny little planet. It's amazing that we can know so much stuff. Now, I know that you have thought about what would happen if we ever moved to another planet, right? How could we live on Mars? How could we make that happen? How are you researching the answers to those questions when it's simply something that's so hard to answer? Well, with Mars, that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about, because what's really exciting is that we are planning the first missions to go to Mars. We're building the rockets now that can send people to Mars. We're planning for everything. And I reckon some people say sooner, but I reckon we can send the first people to Mars in about 30 years from now, which sounds a long time. But here's the really exciting thing. When Neil Armstrong walked on the moon for the first time, he was 38 years old. So if the first person to walk on Mars is also going to be about 38, but they're not going to do it for 30 years, how old are they now? They're around about eight years old. Somewhere between the ages of about five and 15, I would say. In other words, the first Martian is at school right now. And so that's why I love going into schools and talking to kids about Mars, because I could be talking to the first Martian. 
it puts a lot of responsibility on well you going into schools writing so many books and also this is a podcast listened to by families all around the world so we need to think about what we're talking about and how we're inspiring people now just thinking about the future of space travel what's amazing is how quickly everything changes what with new technology and how that impacts our ability to do things what questions are you really looking forward to finding out the answers to in the next 20 or so years that's great yeah okay so i think probably we could split it down into three different things one is the biggest question like the one i get asked all the time so after the schools talks we always have questions and anything about space the number one question I always get asked is, are there aliens? Are we alone in the universe? And for the first time, we have the kind of telescopes now to spot planets outside the solar system to work out what they're like, whether they're like the Earth or not. So, you know, possibly in our lifetimes, we may have an answer to that question, whether we're alone in the universe. So that's a massive one. Another one is, even though I've said that we are detectives and we have all these clues and we're trying to work out about space. We actually don't know what 95% of the universe is made of. So only 5% of the universe is made of the same stuff we are. And the other 95% is made of these things that we call dark matter and dark energy, but we, we don't actually know what those things are. So it's slightly embarrassing that as astronomers, we try and understand the universe and we don't actually know what most of it is made of, but we could. That could be coming in the next 20 years. And the last thing is, if you're at school, you learn the order of the planets kind of just by rote. And there are eight planets in the solar system. Are there? There are starting to be clues that there is another planet in our solar system. One that is way out, so far out from the sun that it would take maybe about 10,000 years to go around the sun but it's still in our solar system. We're calling it planet nine for now because we don't know for sure that it is there. But if we find it and it is there, not only will we have a new planet in the solar system, but it will get a, a proper name like all the others. So I, I still find it amazing you know, that we can look into the distant universe, like you said, billions and billions of light years away. But there is a chance we have missed a planet in our own solar system. And again, within 20 years, we'll know whether it's there or not. Much sooner, I would say, than that. Well, a few questions just on that. Uh, you said there are clues that point towards a planet nine. What are they so far? Well, there are some small objects going around the sun, way out past Pluto, you know, about the size of asteroids, so not planets themselves. But the, their orbits around the sun, the journey they take around the sun, should be really random. So they should be going around in all sorts of different directions, and it all should be a bit sort of higgledy-piggledy. But they're not. They all seem to be going around the sun in a really similar way. So if you walk past a field and you saw a load of sheep running around together in a very organized way, you might go, well, hang on a minute. Maybe there's something going on here. Maybe there's a shepherd. Maybe there's a sheepdog that's making them do that. Well, in the solar system, we can see the objects. Maybe there is something else. And the gravity of that something else is what's pulling on these things and making them do that. It's kind of like the space equivalent of the sheepdog or the shepherd. And so that one possibility for what's making those objects do that is another planet, a ninth planet. And from the way that they move, we can kind of say, well, it should be roughly here. It should roughly be this big. 
Um, and so we're already sort of searching that area of the sky for Planet Nine, but we haven't found it yet, if it's there. Wow. And uh, that's what you can do. Being an astronomer, it's such an amazing path to go down. And listen, there are so many books that you can look up all about everything to do with space, being an astronaut, astronomy, maths as well. Colin Stewart, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean, strange and wild things in the universe, we are headed to the UK, the United Kingdom, which is where I am right now. We're taking a look at the yellow-tailed scorpion. It's a bit strange for me to hear that there are scorpions in the UK. If you're in this country too, is it odd? Can you start to feel the itching and scratching around your body? Is there one climbing your leg? Probably not. This scorpion is thick. Its body is jet black. It's got yellow, almost see-through legs. The stinger at the end is that colour too. Now, it's an ambush predator, meaning it lies in wait, lying dead still near the entrance to its lair. And then when a small insect wanders by, it pounces. Now, they don't need to eat that often. It takes them a while to digest their food. Also, they don't always need to eat insects. Sometimes they even eat each other. These scorpions can be cannibals. They do sting humans, nothing too harmful, but it can be pretty painful. The yellow-tailed scorpion naturally came from Africa and Southern Europe. Here's what's amazing. Until it accidentally came to the UK. Now, I don't think they wanted to. Uh, It's quite cold and windy and rainy here in the UK compared to Africa and Southern Europe. And besides, I don't really think scorpions have a passport, which means they can easily fly overseas. But what happened in the early 19th... But what happened in the early 19th century, about 200 years ago, a colony of these creatures were accidentally left in a box with some Italian stones and artwork in it that was travelling to the UK. And when they got here, they broke free and they stayed. And they've done very well. There are now over 15,000 of these creatures... Uh, in the United Kingdom and they're being a menace to small creatures and insects all over the country and that is why the yellow-tailed scorpion goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. Before we finish up this week, let's take a quick trip into space, shall we, to head to the smartest school in the solar system. We're going to deep space. Hi, this is from our Space for All series. For the last few weeks, we've been catching up with Professor Pulsar and the gang, learning about the type of jobs that you can do uh, in space that aren't always actually being an astronaut. This is what you can do in space. If you love learning about science at school and because you listen to this podcast, I reckon you probably do. So listen up. Deep Space High, Space for All. Morning class. Now, we've been thinking about all the exciting jobs that you could do in the future, and we've been finding out that space jobs aren't just for boffins building rockets. Space is for everyone. Whatever your interest, there's a job for you in space. So, stats, let's hear from you. What's your favourite topic? If it's stats, it's bound to be science. Well, duh, of course. I'm not top of the class in chemistry, biology and physics for nothing. Oh, right. And don't forget top of the class for boasting. (laughs) So, Stats, what is it about science that you like? Uh, 
well, I suppose it's because we get to do experiments, find out why things happen, how to change things. It's just something I like doing, even when I'm not in school. Knowing about physics helped me to modify my space scooter to be able to travel in nine dimensions. I didn't know there were nine dimensions. Cooking is basically experimenting too. I love coming up with new ideas like fizzy ice cream. And when I'm in my galactic greenhouse, I love trying to work out what will make my Neptunian nastatiums grow the best. But space travel isn't the time for inventing, is it? I mean, by the time you're ready to launch, you need to know what's going to happen. Not be doing an experiment into whether you'll make it into orbit or not. <laughs> On the contrary, experimentation is a huge part of space exploration. Not about whether your rocket works or not, although you need to know the answer to that, but space is a great environment to do experiments into other things. They're always carrying out experiments on the International Space Station, and there's no gravity there. Things behave in weird ways. That's right. Let's have a peek. Computer sim, ISS if you please. Ah, let's observe this experiment. The astronaut is wearing high-tech shoes which measure what's happening to her body as she exercises. Anyone care to guess why? Without gravity, the body doesn't have to work as hard to move. That can make muscles weak. I guess they're studying movement to help astronauts stay healthy? That's right. OK, computer, next sim, please. Looks like these scientists are studying some vegetable seedlings. They want to see how the seeds grow up here and whether without gravity in natural daylight they might turn out different to on Earth. Why might we need to know that? I guess when we live in space, we need something to eat. And it's better to eat something that's easy to grow and doesn't mind being in space. That's right. As you can see, many experiments are to help us go further and stay in space for longer. But experiments undertaken in space can also help people back on Earth too. Scientists here on the space station once found that because of the way certain chemicals thrive in space, it was possible to make a new drug to treat muscular dystrophy. And on another occasion, from experiments with mice up here, they found a drug that can treat certain bone conditions. Right, let's get back. Computer, end sim. Science comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, just like you lot. <laughs> And, as we've seen, rocket scientists and astrophysicists don't have all the fun when it comes to space jobs. Biologists, chemists, ecologists, botanists, even psychologists can help make tremendous discoveries by carrying out experiments in the unique environment up here. Does it sound like something you might like to do, Sam? Not really, sir. I like things to be more... predictable, I guess. As predictable as me coming top in class? All right, brains. That's enough. This lesson might be over, but don't worry, Sam, we're not done yet. Next time, I'll be asking for more of your favourite topics, so have a think. And have a think about leaving the room quietly for once. Deep Space High, space for all. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash space. More from Deep Space High at the same time next week on the podcast. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything science that you want answered on the show next week, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com or on our app or on Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. We've got tons more brilliant podcast series for you. And Fun Kids are a children's radio station in the UK. You can hear us in some parts of the country on your DAB digital radio. Get us on the free Fun Kids app. And if you've got a smart speaker, make sure you wake it up. Alexa, hey Google, and say play Fun Kids. And I'll see you next week.